Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will be discussing the ex-gay movement, aka conversion therapy or reparative therapy, that purported to change an individual's sexual orientation. My esteemed guest today is also a friend, Wayne Besson. He graduated from the University of Florida in 1993. That's how I know him. Um, I graduated around the same time. We won't say exactly when. Wayne is the executive director of Truth Wins Out, an organization he founded in 2000. He is a former spokesperson for the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ political organization, and he has spent almost three decades researching, monitoring, and debunking the, quote, ex-gay myth. He has exposed their leaders as frauds, helped shut down leading conversion groups, and has documented how the ex-gay industry is toxic and harms the very people it purports to help. He has appeared in and has been interviewed by various national news outlets, including the New York Times, most of the major news networks, and even The Sean Hannity Show and Comedy Central with Jon Stewart. Wayne is author of Lies with a Straight Face, Exposing the Cranks and Cons Inside the Ex-Gay Industry, which was just released on October 11th. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. It's great to be on. and I love your show. Well, first, just give us a broad overview of what the ex-gay movement is all about. The ex-gay movement is part of faith-healing evangelicalism. They don't believe that LGBTQ people can exist. It has to be some sort of aberration. And so their answer to this is for us to pray away the gay or go to conversion therapy, which delves into your background, your mother, your father, and, and tries to figure out what went wrong, what was the linchpin to turn you gay or transgender, for example. And it's incredibly destructive. It never works. There's a trail of victims. They're called survivors, and they have groups for support. And it's also a political football for the religious right. It's a way for them to raise money, and also uh, they'd like to pass legislation and use this whole ex-gay issue to pass anti-gay laws. They say, well, you don't need to get married. You can just change. You don't need hate crime legislation. The answer is changing. You don't need laws to protect you from job discrimination. Just change. Right, and and I remember they used to, they used the term sexual preference instead of orientation, which was a way of sort of saying that it, it could be changed. And, and opponents of LGBTQ plus laws often use the word preference. Yeah, I mean, that they've uh, evolved over time because as people became more accepting of LGBTQ people, they had to change the language a lot. In fact, that is what launched these ex-gay groups. The religious right didn't believe it either. They shied away from it. And in the early 90s, was as we began to gain more acceptance, they needed to find a way to discriminate against us while making it look like they loved us. And that is how the ex-gay ministries came about and why we saw them launch a massive campaign called Truth and Love in 1998. Right. I'm going to I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. Um, but first, can you just tell us about Exodus International? Why and when were they formed and why did they disband? Exodus International was the world's largest ex-gay ministry. They were started in 1976 in California, and it was a reaction to changes in society. For example, Three years prior, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. People started coming out, and the church needed some way to react to that, and the XK Ministries was one of their answers. And so Exodus was founded by two men, Michael Bussey and Gary Cooper. They were going around the country telling people that they had changed. They were going to churches to argue against acceptance for homosexuality. But on a flight from California to Indianapolis to speak at a church, Michael Bussey looked at Gary Cooper and said, I can't do this anymore. I love you. And Gary looked back and said, I love you too. They left their wives and they ended up marrying each other. That is the founding of the ex-gay ministries. And that was the founders of Exodus International. When they found each other on the flight, is that when they left Exodus or Exodus was disbanded? 
Well, they thought it was going to be disbanded, but it was such an important organization for the church that it kept going and other people filled their shoes. So Exodus International lasted all the way to 2013. And I've had many conversations with Michael Bussey, one of the co-founders, and he said he was stunned that this organization kept going. In fact, he didn't know for many years that it kept going because this was pre-internet. So he had no way of knowing. And then suddenly he saw them on television, his replacements, and he was like, wow, this thing actually is not only growing, but it's thriving and it's on national television. Yeah, it seemed to be, it seemed to me that a lot of it was underground. I mean, a lot of people don't know about this, which is why I'm glad you're here. And when you say the church, I just want to clarify, you're talking about specifically sort of this white evangelical Christian, like the Jerry Falwell. Is that what you're talking about when you say the church? When it comes to Exodus International and, and these establishment exodus groups, yeah, I'm talking about the fundamentalist Christians, the Falwells you, you refer to, uh, the late Pat Robertson, uh, and, and that sort of the Pentecostals, although there are many African-American churches that do subscribe to this and engage in what they call spiritual warfare, which includes things like exorcisms. So it's not just the white evangelicals, although the official ex-gay groups are mostly white evangelicals. Okay, thank you for that clarification. So I've talked a lot about culture wars on this show and how they have real victims. You write in your book about the religious rights notorious 1998 Truth in Love campaign. You referred to it as the Normandy landing in the culture war. Can you explain what you mean by this? The religious right needed to change what the way they were doing business. They were losing. The culture was rapidly changing at this time. Ellen had just come out of the closet. Will and Grace was about to be launched. Uh, people finally knew LGBTQ people as their friends, their family, their neighbors, and the co-workers. And the polling was reflecting this. So the religious right needed to go big to put us back in the closet. And they settled on promoting ex-gay activists who said they had changed through the power of Jesus Christ. How are they going to do this? How are they going to get this message out? Well, they settled on this incredibly expensive national ad campaign with full-page ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, and the LA Times, and so on. Also a television com uh, commercial campaign. They called it the Normandy Landing in the Cultural Wars, and that comes from Robert Knight, who worked with the Family Research Council, because they were so confident this was gonna destroy the LGBTQ rights movement and drive us back in the closet, that they really did consider it a, a, a uh, World War II attempt to destroy us, to wreck every gain we have made at the time. And so they really went all in on this. And this was the first example of a country where all of the major conservative religious groups decided they were going to jump on the ex-gay bandwagon. That's why it's significant in our history. And also the results are very significant. What happened to all the ex-gays they promoted? What happened to their campaign? Now, we can discuss that, but but they had high hopes and they thought this was our they thought this was the end, our demise. Yeah, and during this time, you know, we saw a radical change in support for things like marriage equality and gay rights. And a lot of that was because of, as you say, people coming out, television shows, Will and Grace, and what you call the puppy panic. Do you want to talk about what the, what the, yeah, the puppy pu panic is? When Ellen DeGeneres was deciding whether she was going to come out of the closet, which was monumental at the time, people forget how big that was. They wanted to hide it from the press. And so they called that episode where she came out, the, the, puppy, uh, the puppy episode. And I call it puppy panic in my book, Lies with a Straight Face, because it caused the religious right to freak out. They saw their entire mindset on LGBTQ issues, their, their campaigns being undermined. They thought it was the end. And so this panic that ensued was responsible for this ex-gay campaign, the Truth and Love campaign. You can't put enough emphasis on how scary that was for them when Ellen came out and then Will and Grace after that. And their, their need to uh, take drastic action 
to persuade Americans that we were sick, sinful, and not only could heal or be cured, but should be healed and cured. Interesting. I, I want to talk about specifically what conversion therapy is. And as I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, conversion therapy or reparative therapy is sort of a subset of the XK movement, or I guess it's essential to it. And um, I looked into this a little bit. It seems to go way back. Uh, I read that in 1899, a German psychiatrist, Albert von Schrecknotzing, probably not pronouncing it right, he claimed to change a man's sexual orientation through hypnosis. And many have written that this was a seminal event in the new conversion therapy phenomenon. Can you talk about this sort of the history? And I'd like you to explain exactly what conversion therapy entailed, or I guess entails, assuming they're still doing it. Much of the therapy that we consider conversion therapy came after the formation of psychiatry, Freud and so on. And a lot of the religious language regarding illnesses went from a church paradigm to one of medicine. For example, sodomy became homosexuality, possession, demon possession, schizophrenia, things like that. And so they were looking for ways to cure LGBTQ people, specifically after World War II ended in the 1950s, when America became very conservative and took over as the center of psychiatry because Europe was so devastated by the war. So in the 50s, in McCarthy's era America, there was a moral panic around LGBTQ people, and they were essentially using us as gay guinea pigs with experimental treatment, everything from lobotomies to using ice picks for lobotomies, shock therapy, aversion therapy. All of those horrible things are what they put us through with no evidence of success, and they lied about their success. The current conversion therapy was a reaction to the 1973 decision by the American Psychiatric Association to consider us no longer mentally ill, to take us off the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And 20 year, around 20 years later, some opportunistic psychiatrists and psychologists who were bitter about that decision saw political opportunity as the nation became more polarized with Democrats and Republicans. This was around the time you know, Newt Gingrich was being elevated to Speaker of the House and the Republicans going against Bill Clinton it became very nasty and bitter. So there were these divides. And conservatives were looking for answers on this issue. And these quacks, as I would call them, Dr. Nicolosi, for example, saw an opportunity. Dr. Char Charles Socarides, who was one of the most anti-gay psychiatrists and who fought against taking homosexuality off the DSM in 1973, formed a group called NARF, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. And this group wanted to recategorize us as mentally ill. Dr. Charles Socarides said we're a purple menace threatening the designs of sexuality on society. So they were very biased. I want to stick with the 1990s because yeah. uh, I actually don't recall, I don't recall the, uh, I guess what was still the moral majority or the 1990s version of it, Newt Gingrich et al. I don't, I don't recall them making this sort of ex-gay thing front and center, was it still sort of in the background that they were using to mobilize the evangelical Christians? They specifically didn't make it front and center, but the rise of the evangelicals in politics, if you look around the country, including when we were in Gainesville, there were these fights for equal rights ordinances, so you couldn't be fired from your job for being gay or lesbian. That's when we started seeing them put out ex-gay videos, such as the Gay Agenda and, it, and It's Not Gay uh, and Gay Rights Special Rights in the early 90s. That is when they were experimenting with it. And then in 1998, they launched the gigantic campaign and spent you know, upwards of yeah, half a million dollars. I get, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but I guess my sense of the 1990s is that a lot of these savvy politicians like Newt Gingrich, they probably knew that this was controversial, so they didn't attach themselves to it, and it was somewhat still underground, but maybe I'm wrong about that. It just seems like... No, no, uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not actually, but, but right, that was that, but because of the politicized and polarizing atmosphere that was being created by them, it created opportunities 
on the fringes for these ideas to come into play, to fight these culture wars that were beginning to heat up, that we were part of in Gainesville, for example. And that is the beginnings of They were looking for ways to win, to, to stop LGBTQ people from being... Um, from not being fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that is how this came into play. So it, it was to defeat us. These were, these were strategies. And that was the incipient strategy of using ex-gays. They were introducing it around 92, 93. And then it, it, it became the centerpiece in 1998. But yeah, it wasn't as big at that point. That was, they, were, they were test marketing, as I talk about in Lies with a Straight Face. In the early 90s was the test marketing phase with videos, specifically the gay agenda and gay rights, special rights. And then they apparently saw promise in that and saw it as successful, particularly with their base. And so then they went full bore in 1998. Right. And the Republicans ever since the 70s with the moral majority with Ronald Reagan, they have needed the evangelical Christian vote to keep their winning coalition together. So they couldn't, um, they had to, they had to embrace this. And uh, the, the, the first politician major one that did embrace this publicly, which was also in 1998 and played into the truth and love campaign, Trent Lott compared being gay to alcoholism and said, you can change it. That is what really set off a firestorm. And then the White House responded. Mike McCurry, the uh, press secretary, called him backwards. Within a couple months of this, the Truth and Love campaign was launched. That was, that was something that really played into it. So we start seeing it in 1998 where major politicians are backing it, including the, the Trent Lott himself from Mississippi. So you mentioned that by forcing kids into having sex, for example, forcing a boy to have sex with a woman, that this is abuse, right? So can you elaborate on this? When I was a young kid, I was around 13, I knew I wasn't attracted to girls, but the enormous pressure when hit on by girls to, quote, perform, to, to at least, quote, experiment, was something I felt forced into. I didn't want to. I knew who I was at that point. And I think a lot of gay people experience that. And they are forced into these sexual relations to, to, so people will not suspect who they are. And I find it a form of abuse that we just spray it off as, oh, this is something you're just experimenting. No, it wasn't experimenting. It was forced sex with the opposite gender that I didn't want to do. And it's not, I mean, let's not overblow this. This was hardly the biggest tragedy in the history of the world, quite minor compared to what other people go through, but it's unnecessary. And I point out that nobody would tell a young straight boy or girl, oh, are you sure you're heterosexual? Why don't you go experiment with your same-sex friend before you decide? But yet, no, they don't have any problem asking gay and lesbian people to do that when they're young. And it needs to stop. People can figure out who they are and they know who they are without being forced into these situations against their will just to right. uh, and, meet societal expectations. Yeah. And, and this example, uh, the boy, you know, is sort of forced to have sex with a woman and forced to try to, as you said, date. And, and it, it's also not fair to the woman because, you know, she's sort of strung along and, you know, you see this a lot where uh, closeted men married women and then there were divorces and it was all so unnecessary. So it's all sort of uh, it's harmful to everyone involved. Right. Is yeah, that fair to and, say? We're, and we're seeing a lot of these ex-gay activists getting divorced. Uh, we have Mike Haley from Focus on the Family. Now, at these protests we've been to, we've seen the signs focus on your own damn family. And Mike Haley was the ex-gay <laughs> leader for Focus on the Family for many years. And he recently got divorced. And so I guess he wasn't focusing on his own damn family. He was too busy focusing on ours. I just um, I, I had an investigation I released last week on an ex-gay leader, Christopher Doyle, who was divorced a few years ago. And in the divorce papers, he was accused by his wife of abuse. And there were two restraining orders against him. This is common. I mean, in, in the ex-gay industry, especially, it's a badge of honor. As I say, though, they love to show you the wedding photos, but they never show you the divorce papers after 
they split up and, and Christopher Doyle and Michael Haley both hid their divorces and didn't go public with it. Okay. So I'm going to stick with the nineties. Um, in 1998, you started working as a spokesperson for the human rights campaign. And as I mentioned, the human rights campaign is, um, I guess you would call it uh, a gay rights organization, a pro LGBTQ plus organization. And in that same year, the religious right launched this million dollar truth and love ex gay campaign you mentioned. So what was that experience like? It was surreal for me because I had just started working <laughs> there and they sent me to the press conferences in the National Press Club because they didn't know me yet. So I would slip in, I looked like media and I would observe. And I was sitting next to these major religious right activists that I'd only read about. And they were all there in one room trying to destroy us, plotting our demise. And it, it was uh, quite a scene. And there were these XK activists that were there as well, such as John Polk and Anthony Falzerano. And I was just trying to fit in and not be noticed. Eventually I was noticed and we had a deal we sort of cut where I would get to go to their press conferences. They could come to ours as long as we didn't get disrupted. And that's how it went. Hmm. And that's how I got to know a lot of the people who were in that movement and they got a lot of inside information about it and started being known for it. That's how it began. Was it creepy? Did, did some of it feel creepy that you felt like they were, they sort of knew better and it was a, a sham? It was incredibly creepy for me <laughs> because some of these people looked normal until they started talking and some of them <laughs> were very nice to me. And then they'd go off on these fringe batshit crazy ideas and you would look at them and go, my God, you sir, you were nice a minute ago. And now you seem like you would wreck my family and, and God knows what you would do to me if given the chance. And so there was that part of it, the disconnect between their friendly smiles and what they were trying to do to our community. There was a, a variety of ex-gay and religious right activists. Some of them were insane. I, they really had visions and heard voices. Others were religious zealots who had the extreme beliefs of the convert. Others were con artists and were there for the money. And after mm -hmm. a while, you'd figure out who was who by the way they went about their business. And some of them were very sincere. Not all of them are con artists, but others, it was about the money and saw this as an, an issue to cash in on. As Ralph Reed once called Janet Folger, who was the architect of the Truth and Love campaign. He called her an issues entrepreneur. And from what I know about her, I believe that to be true. When you say make money, I w this is something I'm curious about. One of the motivations for keeping this going, I guess, is to make money. Do they charge a lot of money for these programs? That's not how they do it. You get in for free to the program. Oh, okay. But once you're in, that's where the scam begins. So they're like, well, if you're really serious and want to please God, you'll buy my book. Although there's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with buying books and you should buy lies with a straight face. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but they would say, buy my books, <laughs> buy my tapes. Here's my workbook that you can do. Uh, come to my seminar. And each one of those costs money. And then they would refer you to their friends who were therapists. And they would cash in, in some cases, get kickbacks. And uh, there was a lot of money to be made. And in fact, the investigation of Christopher Doyle last week, it was in the divorce papers, we found he made over $200,000 a year harming LGBTQ uh -huh. people and others. So it's quite lucrative, these businesses, but they, they get you in what, because it, it's free originally. But then you have to go to the conferences right. and, you know, and it adds up. You fly across the country to go to a conference and then buy all the material. And if you don't do it, they use guilt. Like, you didn't buy this. Well, I, I thought you wanted to change. You know, only people who want to, only people who put in the effort can transform into heterosexual. And if you didn't buy my book, you didn't listen to my tape, you didn't go to this conference across the country or in another country, you are just going through the motions. You don't really want it. Right. And I suppose these therapists that they refer people to, I say therapists in quotes, yeah. uh, could probably bill could probably bill insurance and the parents' insurance would pay for it. So I guess there was money to be made all around. 
Yes, so yes. I, and they, I would, they, would, they would couch it as something else. They wouldn't just quit, you know, conversion therapy, reparative therapy. They would, uh, anxiety, because, of course, if you're trying to change and you, you know, or your depression because you're depressed because you can't fit in and your parents <laughs> will throw you out of the house because you have, you, you're, you're gay. So that's the way yeah, they the, do it. That's how they do it. The, the di- this is not funny, but it's a little bit funny. The diagnosis is anxiety, depression, but they're causing the anxiety yes. and depression. Like, I, would call, okay. I would say it's a conflict of interest. They're the ones causing depression, anxiety, <laughs> and self-destructive behavior. And yet they're saying, hey, I'm here to cure you. But that, that's the conflict of interest. They're the cause, not the, not the solution. Uh, I want to move to 2006. It's interesting to me. You wrote that um, you started Truth Wins Out in 2006 after President George W. Bush invited these ex-gay leaders from Exodus International to the White House. Uh, can you uh, talk, take us back to that time and tell us what happened there? I had outed a couple of these leaders as frauds. I photographed the king of the ex-gay ministries, who was the star of the Truth and Love campaign and on the cover of Newsweek, John Polk, in a gay bar in Washington, D.C. in the year 2000. I had outed Michael Johnston, another star of that campaign, as a fraud. He was meeting men online and having orgies in motel rooms. And we even found a tape. And he stepped down for what the American Family Association called a moral fall. So... I thought this was going to tail off a little bit, but the religious right couldn't because if they stop promoting the ex-gay programs, what do they have left? Well, they've got more fire and brimstone and the polling was showing that's not working. And then there's acceptance. Well, many mainstream churches did choose acceptance, but the religious right, the Pentecostal Southern Baptist Convention, they weren't ready. So they had to keep beating this dead horse. It kept growing in spite of these major failures. It reached its pinnacle in 2006. George W. Bush was trying to pass the federal marriage amendment, putting uh, banning marriage in the Constitution, and he needed a push. The ex-gay message was perfect. You you don't need to marry because you can change. That's the answer. Not not getting married. And so Alan Chambers and Randy Thomas from Exodus International were invited there. I was incensed that it had reached this level. I mean, I had already put out one book on this. I had dedicated a lot of my career to fighting it, and, and it had only grown. And I said, you know what? This demands a real response. And so I went to the National Press Club and launched Truth Wins Out a day after they had been in the White House. I said, I, I've got to do something more about this and try to expose them as frauds. And uh, I think that's happened. But it was difficult and it took time. But that, that's when they had reached their pinnacle of power, 2006, with George W. Bush. OK, so you've already mentioned some of these people, but I just want to tick through some of these specific leaders. And I'm just going to go one by one. I think you mentioned Joseph Nicolosi. I'd like to talk about him because as a psychologist, I feel like this was an attempt to legitimate the movement with medicine. Can you just tell us a little about uh, Nicolosi? Well, that's a good way to, to put it. He was trying to the the, I mean, the religious right knew that there was only a certain sector of society they can reach through religion. To reach more secular audience, they needed to bring science into it, or in this case, pseudoscience. And that's why Dr. Joseph Nicolosi and Charles Saccharides were able to fill that vacuum. And they put out a, a fake diagnosis calling it reparative therapy and SSA or same-sex attraction is what they called it at the time, that they could cure. And Dr. Nicolosi, with his reparative therapy, would say, you're, you're a gay man because your father didn't show you affection. And so you rebelled against your father and everything masculine. And the cure was making same-sex friends in a non-sexual way. And once you did that, you'd be secure in your manhood and the same-sex feelings would dissipate and opposite sex feelings would rush in. That was his major contribution that uh, so he was. So, so he was mostly doing this. He wasn't shocking anybody. He was just doing this sort of through uh, talk therapy and maybe hypnosis, maybe shaming people. Is that right? 
Yes, that's what he was doing. There was not shock therapy with Dr. Nicolosi. There were, however... Was he a fraud? Was he a was fraud? He, yes, Dr. Nicolosi was a complete and utter fraud. He's never shown a success story in his life. He brought them forward, but he kept collecting the and, money. And, with, and when people would say it didn't work, he never returned the money. And you feel like he knew that it was a sham, right? That it didn't oh, I work. Knew. I know he did because he didn't have any success story. Hey, Dr. Nicholas, what are your statistics? He was asked by a reporter. He replied, I don't have time to keep statistics. But of course, <laughs> he didn't have time to keep his success rate, but then he would come up and, and invent numbers when it suited him and say one third can change, one third are in the middle and one third fail. I'm like, where did you get your numbers from? What's the base of that? Couldn't come up with the numbers. In his organization that he started, NARF, there were therapists that did do aversion therapy. Some of it was minor. You put a rubber band on your wrist, and every time you see someone attractive, you snap it. Other times, they would use ammonia capsules, and they would stick. They would yeah. close your eyes, and they'd open. You'd open your eyes and see a picture of a naked man, and then you'd sniff ammonia. Uh, ammonia, and the clients, in some cases, didn't know what was happening. This happened with a, a very prominent case of this was in, in Dallas, Texas. Christopher Austin, who was arrested for this, for abusing his clients sexually. And he was one who used that uh, ammonia capsule. So that still went on, although less and less as time went on. We don't see it that often today. That's not to say it doesn't exist, but it's not a primary means of today's conversion therapy. Okay, so you you wrote about Alan Chambers. You already mentioned him, but um, I do want to talk a little bit more about Alan Chambers. He was hired in 2001 as president of Exodus International. You met him, right? Yeah, I know Alan well. I mean, I met him. Um, he came up to me at a North conference and we started talking. When I wrote my first book in 2003, he invited me to his house in Orlando. And I went to his big mega church, which I described as biblical Broadway because it was such a show. And uh, went to lunch with his wife, went to the house. And, and, and his life, he and his wife, Leslie, were very nice. They had some very out there ideas. But they gave me incredible access for my first book. So I knew I knew them quite well, actually. And that was before he, he sort of came out as gay and denounced Exodus. So when he invited you to the house, was that to try to convince you that ex-gay therapy was working or? Yes. And that he wasn't extreme and that his ideas weren't fringe and that he was a nice okay. person that wasn't out to hate us. That's what he was trying to convince me of. I didn't fall for it. I'll say something about Alan Chambers, though. He is one of those who was sincere. He's not a con man. He uh, put, he put okay. everything into it for himself to change and to change others. He came from a very religious background and felt that if he didn't change, he would go to hell. He was a, he was a true believer's true believer. Alan Chambers is not a bad person in terms of not he's not there to rip you off when he was doing this he wanted to keep you out of hell he wanted to stay within biblical guidelines he was not a fraud but he was defrauding people in the sense his product didn't work he couldn't help anybody. So when so when he knew that it didn't work is that when he got out of it and disbanded exodus i think it was 2013 it took a long time, and he became increasingly more extreme and started introducing things like demonic possession. Uh, right. he, became, he became very radical for a while. And, but I think that had to do with the fact he knew it wasn't working, and, and, and I think he was very upset about it. And he began lying about the effectiveness to his credit, he finally came around and said, I can't do this anymore. It doesn't work. It's never worked for anybody. And I'm not going to commit fraud. Uh, he hurt a lot of people, no doubt about that. But to his credit, how many people give up a lucrative industry and their position in society to tell the truth? He did that. So, but he acknowledged he's still has same-sex attraction and he's gay and he hasn't cured anybody. But to his credit, he decided to tell the truth better late than never. And I will give him credit for that. 
So Wayne, um, I want to talk about Arthur Abba Goldberg. Chapter 12 uh, is titled Abba Dabba Do. And so you, you, you devote a whole chapter to him. So can you talk about his role in all of this? Abba Goldberg was fascinating. Here is a guy who was Bernie Madoff before Bernie Madoff. He's on Wall Street. He's ripping people off for millions of dollars. He gets caught. He goes to jail. He loses his law license. After he gets out of jail, he's like, how am I going to make a living? Well, his son comes out of the closet. And he said, bingo, that's it. I'll start an ex-gay program for Jews. And it was a brilliant scam because Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn didn't know how to handle the issue. More of them were coming out of the closet. And Arthur offered the solution. He'd go and say, for fee, I will cure these gay Orthodox Jews. His organization was shut down after a Southern Poverty Lawsuit Center uh, lawsuit against them for consumer fraud. And they no longer exist. The group was Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. And I've interviewed many of their uh, survivors who were made to get undressed and touch themselves and fondle themselves in front of a mirror by Alan Downing, one of their counselors. So this is a really sick group. And thank God it was shut down for fraud. And he had to pay a fortune unless he shut down his organization and he shut it down and they no longer exist. And he's not allowed to do any form of ex-gay ministry or conversion therapy. He keeps trying. He's been caught a few times, and the court has told him to stop. But the man is a con artist to the core. He's a fraud. He's a very bad person, and he's going to continue to try to uh, pop up and rear his ugly head and try to make money off exploiting people's pain. XK Ministries focus more on Christians, but conversion therapy is a large constituency of Jewish people and Mormons. So you have an entire uh, chapter devoted to Christopher Doyle entitled uh, Snake Oil Doyle. Do you want to say anything more about him? Here's somebody who belongs to a cult that practiced nude therapy, and he defends naked therapy and what they call touch therapy. And oddly enough, in my investigation, he had a client and and a staff member who it appeared to be having some kind of strange relationship that started with this touch therapy. The client was calling him daddy in these text messages I had obtained, and he was calling the client boo-boo. I don't know. That doesn't sound like any kind of therapy that that I have (laughs) been aware of. But this touch therapy is a very dangerous part of conversion therapy and XK ministries, and it opens a lot of clients up to sexual abuse by their therapist who isn't, quote, healed themselves. So was he touching them? Is that? Yes, they cuddle together. They have these cuddly moments where they sit on the couch and they in the therapist's arms and he's supposed to be your surrogate daddy. But that somehow morphed into text message that said daddy 11 times interspersed with smiley faces and emoji hearts. Gosh. So uh, so what what happened to Doyle? Was he exposed? Did he? I exposed him last week. It wasn't until last week when I when when all of this information oh. came out. Uh, oh, just on, last week, breaking news here. Breaking wow! News. Yes, an LGBTQ nation. I broke the news. This was a big deal because he's still actively harming people in Northern Virginia today, and speaking out in the media and fighting back against attempts to ban conversion therapy for minors in the law. So this is a political podcast, and uh, you know this is a political issue now. It has become a political policy issue. Several countries have banned conversion therapy, including Canada, Brazil, Ecuador, Spain, Germany, France, Malta, and New Zealand. In the United States, twenty-two states and DC have banned conversion therapy. You know, when I look at the map, it looks like this sort of blue state, red state breakdown, like you see with abortion. Um, Utah seems to be an exception. Um, But you wrote in your book that these statewide bans are inadequate. Why are they inadequate? First, I support them. I want to make that clear. And I've testified on two bills in Massachusetts and New Jersey. But there's no real enforcement mechanism and no teeth behind it, number one. So these therapists aren't really being put out of business. I I put out, I put more out of business by exposing them than any of these laws. They haven't done much for that. The second part of that is these therapists 
hide behind the First Amendment and religious freedom, which is backed by many conservatives, including the Supreme Court now. So say you're a conversion therapist today. Tomorrow, if there's a law passed, you say, oh, I discovered Jesus and now I'm a Christian therapist. And it's mm-hmm. religion, not therapy. And suddenly you can do the same you, thing. So is he, the, the, You just rebrand it. Yes, yes. You rebrand, reboot, and there's a, there's a loophole big enough to drive a Mack truck through. And that is why we haven't seen any of these therapists really uh, losing their jobs over these laws. That said, the laws show how dangerous they are. They get media attention and the imprimatur government saying it doesn't work. So I, I do support them. I think they're helpful. But sometimes they're presented as bans and oversold when the impact is more symbolic than a way to put them out of business and keep them from hurting young people. That Any young person can still get this therapy or just through a Christian counselor now. So it's, uh, and, and they, I mean, they can do the same thing. They just throw in a prayer generally. And are all of these, are all of these state bans pretty much the same language or do some of them have more teeth than others? Most of them are pretty much the same language. The problem is the religious exception. And we just, for example, Florida and the 11th Circuit just just overturned a bunch of Florida laws and they actually had to pay damage to the quacks. I mean, they talk about insult to injury. There's a brick wall in the way for getting more of these laws passed. They were passed in the blue states, as you pointed out. Utah is, a, is a, an outlier in that they're also the second the state with the second most support for non-discrimination laws next to New Hampshire. So they're not they're not your typical reds. You can't compare them to Mississippi for or Alabama or Oklahoma. It's just not right because Mormons are different than uh, evangelical Christians and Trump is not popular in Utah, but that's another exactly. podcast. Exactly. And so that's why that's different. You can't compare it uh, and say, well, there's hope for other red states because of Utah. It's apples and oranges. But these laws may be going to the Supreme Court. The USA, USA Today had an article last week where it said that the Supreme Court will likely be considering whether these laws are constitutional. And I would love to be victorious, but I'm not going to put all my hope in Amy Coney Barrett when she'd probably like to be doing conversion therapy on people herself, for all we know. Uh, Alito. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 they have, yeah, they have found sort of this uh, religious liberty that's not really in the Constitution, and they are ignoring the separation clause. So they allowed that that coach to sub- subjugate uh, children to prayer in a public school. So I, I have a yeah, feeling they would err on the side of these quacks in terms of uh, religious liberty and free speech. Right. They want they want to perpetrate religious bigotry and they do it under the guise of religious liberty. And I, I don't feel too hopeful about the way they would side either on this. I hope. Okay, I'm wrong. So chap- I hope I'm wrong. I hope I hope you're wrong, too. So chapter eight of your book is entitled Ungodly in Uganda. And I will just note here that while there have been gains made over 30 countries uh, now have legal gay marriage, there are roughly 64 countries that have laws that criminalize homosexuality. Uh, Nearly half of these are in Africa. Uganda stands out as the cruelest to me. The Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2023 this year makes same-sex punishable by the death penalty. So can you talk about Uganda and how the ex-gay movement has contributed to this? All of this started when you had three activists from America come to Uganda. And they said it was going to be a nuclear bomb for homosexuality. And that is exactly what happened. This included two ex-gay activists. One was a board member for Exodus International, and the other one worked for uh, with Chris Doyle at the International Healing Foundation. And they came and they lied about gay people, and they promoted conversion therapy, and there were lawmakers in that audience, and that led to the anti-homosexuality bill, or as Rachel Maddow has is aptly called it, the Kill the Gays bill. So we have a real problem with American evangelicals spreading their poison, their toxicity overseas, in Uganda and elsewhere. And it's a real problem. They, these missionaries go across the globe and create havoc and destroy people's lives. Yeah, it's it's just quite tragic. So you have written that, and you've talked about this already, but I want to ask you a little bit more about it. You've written that one of the most effective strategies at ending this abuse is lawsuits against these therapists. How did you arrive at this? And 
Can you just tell us how they've been successful and how it's playing out? I came up with the idea of suing them for fraud, and I did a booklet with Lambda Legal called X Gay and the Law. Uh, I did a video a couple of years later with two survivors who were sexually abused by Jonah, Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center fortunately saw these videos and thought that they could win a lawsuit against it. And they we went around the country finding survivors. And there was a good consumer fraud law that made it easier in New Jersey, which happened to be where Jonah was located, in Jersey City. And so we were able to, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center was able to put an incredible, powerful legal team together. They sued and they won. Jonah was put out of business by a jury for committing fraud against their clients. And these are very powerful, more so in many senses than laws banning it, because you can't hide behind the First Amendment, religious liberty, religious freedom, bogus arguments. If you're, It's about offering a product and not delivering what you promise. It's about harming people. It's fraud. And therefore, it takes away their biggest defense. And that is why we need to win those, those lawsuits. Yeah. So, Wayne, are these mostly civil suits where somebody who's harmed or a family sues for damages like in New Jersey? Or are they state's attorney prosecutors filing criminal charges? Or is it a little uh, bit of both? It can be both because there's some sexual abuse involved in it, as I mentioned. But it's, it's about putting them out of business using fraud statutes. It's more about that's the goal to make them shut down. And we need more of those laws, but I think there's been shortcuts. It's easier and cheaper to go and pass a law in a blue state that won't shut anybody down to put the resources and time into finding consumer fraud lawsuits. And I, I find it terribly unfortunate that the lawsuit in New Jersey with Jonah is the only one we have seen. And I think it's um, some of the larger organizations that have profited off this should be putting more effort into that, in my opinion. Well, no, that, I'm glad you point that out because sometimes politicians say, look, we passed the law, we're done. But really, it could be putting pressure on prosecutors and attorneys general to pursue some of these fraudsters, right? Right. Okay. So you end your book, Lies with a Straight Face, with an interesting editorial choice. You quote the lyrics from the Talking Heads song, Once in a Lifetime. Can you talk about the meaning behind this choice and what you were trying to convey? I just felt that it really captured the experience of the ex-gay survivor, someone who spends years of their lives trying to change and enormous amounts of money and time. And after all of that work that they do, after emptying their bank accounts so they can be cured or healed, they are in the same place, same as it ever was, same as it ever was, like the talking heads say. And they also, with the lyrics, I, you may ask yourself, my God, what have I done? That is the conclusion they all have come to after their therapy is over. And they need therapy from real therapists for many years after that, usually. I think you'd mentioned the uh, American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association. Have they all condemned this? Yes. Every single respected medical and mental health organization condemns this as harmful, ineffective, and can cause all sorts of problems from substance abuse to suicide. So there is no non-fundamentalist organization out there that deals with mental health or medical issues that supports conversion therapy in the United States or any other modern country. So uh, it seems like things are getting better. There's more awareness of this. There are lawsuits. There are laws. A lot of these large organizations like Exodus are out of business. But as you mentioned in your book, smaller ones are popping up and it's still happening. Um, but do you think there are less of them than there were in the 90s? There are less of them now, but they're always trying to rebrand and reboot. And just yesterday, Matt Walsh, the right-wing radio host endorsed X-Game Ministries and got a lot of traction on that. There's a new group called Change Movement. It's part of the Bethel Church in Redding, California. It's a cult that does faith healing. And this church says they can not only cure homosexuality, they can regrow limbs. They can help people with limbs walk straight again. They can cure cancer. This is a very radical, crazy cult. But they also have a budget of over $60 million annually. And where do they get the money? money? Where, where, do, where do they get that? This is called Change Movement. 
change well, where do they the get church, the money from the church is bethel church then they're a part of bethel church and bethel makes the money through christian publishing and music and that's how they make it but it's actually it's <sighs> a real problem it's a problem because redding california only has ninety thousand residents Eleven thousand belong to that church, so it's become a real menace to that community. Wow, I had no yeah, idea. There was one. There was one story that they chase around people who limp, and they all put their hands on them and try to heal them, sometimes against their will. And it's a real horrible, def- offensive, obnoxious thing to do. Oh wow. Okay. Well, I <laughs> I do like to try to wrap up on a positive note. So, can you give us some? something positive to end on? I'm filled with hope on this topic because every time we've been challenged, we've exposed their leaders as frauds. We have an enormous record. I see my work like a prosecutor making a case, and the case is large, it's robust, powerful, and shows that these groups don't work, they harm people, and as a result, people are taking them less seriously. And in spite of their attempts to reboot and rebrand, they have been unable to do so to reclaim the position of power in the media and society they had in the 90s. Okay, well, that is a, that is a positive note. And Wayne, I just I appreciate all the work that you've done, all the advocacy. I know that this is very time consuming to go and sort of infiltrate the, infiltrate these groups. And sunshine is the best disinfectant. And you've uh, you've really spread a lot of light on this. The book is Lies with a Straight Face: Exposing the Cranks and Cons Inside the Ex-Gay Industry. It was released on October 11th and is available everywhere now. Thank you so much for being on the show, Wayne. Oh, one more thing. The audio book is available, too, on Audible. So that's my – I've done three books, but this is the first audio book, and what an experience that was. <laughs> so, so the book is available on audiobook also. Okay, thank yeah. you so much for being on the show today, Wayne. Thanks. It's been great to be on. I, I've really enjoyed it. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at – politics cons that wraps up this podcast until next time be kind to yourself and others